0: pastor and I'm the guy who gets to teach passages Luke doesn't know how to teach so that's why I'm up here just kidding as you can see that's a fun passage we've got a thing that if you're a churchy type person you've seen guy rides into town on a donkey and then you've got this weird thing a tree and then that same guy curses that tree it dies and then he goes into temple and cleanses so my job is to fit all that together hopefully I can do that for you today um this will be fun. This is a, 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 a special passage because essentially from now until uh, Advent time, Christmas time, we are in one week of time as far as the Bible goes. This is the, the Passion Week, the final week of Jesus' life. And like uh, Matthew and uh, Luke both said, this is Palm Sunday. This is Jesus' entrance into the city where he's going to die. It's the beginning of the end. It is the triumphal entry. It is a big deal in the Christian heritage. Just curious, raise your hand if you've ever seen, heard, or been in a church service where Palm Sunday was addressed, talked about, or maybe acted out. Raise your hand real quick. Wow, so we got some church folks in the room. So we know this. My wife grew up at a church where every Palm Sunday, a guy would ride down the center aisle on a donkey and people would be waving palm branches. This is a big deal in Christian history. This is the landmark. And yet a problem arises... We live in a world that is not necessarily churchy anymore. We live amongst people who don't have any church context. So if you were to invite a friend here on Palm Sunday, and they see good old Luke Simmons strolling in on a donkey, and the rest of us with palm branches, we've got some explaining to do. You, you made all this fuss. You've been inviting me to church for two years. Now I show up and I see Luke Simmons on a donkey ride right on the stage. Please explain yourself. That's what we plan to do. Explain the context. Explain the meaning. Why? And the bigger question that's tied with this Holy Week and this entrance into the city is, is the why of the Bible. So the question I posed first service was this. If you had to describe this Bible to someone... Picture kind of the most non-religious person, most secular-minded person you know. If you had to explain this Bible in one question, how would you explain it? Not, not, not like a, a, a main sentence, but a question. Meaning, do you know what, in essence, this Bible, this book, this story is being boiled down to as far as a problem or a question it's addressing? I think most people don't. They have an idea of a loving God who basically wants to bless them and give them lots of stuff and give them a really long, comfortable life with lots of blessings and lots of abundance and lots of kids who get basically repeat the process and live long, comfortable lives. And then we die, and then we go off to heaven, which is just a notch above this earth, and we get to enjoy the same sort of thing in heaven as we did down here. But that's not the point of the Bible. It's not the point of history This Bible is answering one question. And I know that to be true because I've read the beginning and I've read the end. The beginning starts like this. In the beginning, there was God and then poof, he created. In the pinnacle of his creation is man, Adam. In the pinnacle of this creation moment is God and man in a garden together. Adam, Eve, and God living together in perfect harmony in a garden. And then if you read the end of it, Revelation 21, 22 describes the end of all this. And Revelation 22 says this. The way God's going to... Kickstart the new heavens and the new earth everything gets renewed and then the new jerusalem comes down the heavenly city the capital city of eternity comes down and it says this but there is no longer need for a temple which we'll see in this passage because jesus christ god is the temple and he is amongst his people a garden man in god a city man in god yet in the middle it's not that pretty it's ugly Bible calls it sin, it's evil, it's distorted, it's broken. So the question that the Bible is asking and the question that I wanna get to as we look at this very familiar passage if you're a church person, is how does a holy God live amongst unholy people? That's at the heart of the Bible. That is the question God is answering. That is what he's addressing in this book. Your prosperity and your comfort and your life and your kids and your job, all that plays a a minor tangent role in the big picture of how does a holy, majestic, perfect God come down and live amongst sinful, unholy people like you and I. That's the gist of the Bible. That is the question that is answered in this book. And in this triumphal entry, we get a just snapshot of how God actually does that. How does holy God come down and live amongst unholy people? So I kind of said at the beginning, why do we need this? Christian, you need this because we forget. We forget that at the core of our existence is a longing and a desire to be in complete union with God. So we need to be reminded that this whole history, this whole universe, the story from beginning to end is about God coming down to live amongst us because we forget that it's about our reconciled relationship with God. And the other one I alluded to was, our non-Christian friends, in our growingly uh, biblical, illiterate culture, if we had donkey boys stroll in, We have to explain what all this means. We live in a culture that does not know Israel, does not know Sinai, does not know the Ten Commandments, doesn't know Genesis, doesn't believe in Adam, doesn't get the church, doesn't understand the Holy Spirit, does not get all of this. And if you show up and your answer to the world's problems is a guy and a donkey, you've got to unpack it for people to understand. And that's what I hope to, the context matters. A guy and a donkey is not the end of the story. A guy in the donkey is a picture of the bigger story that God has been writing from eternity past until now. So that's what we're doing. There's, there's four things we're gonna cover in this passage and they're all based off this truth. Only Jesus can provide what is necessary for God and man to be reconciled. Only Jesus. And there's four things I see in this passage. Jesus is the only one who can provide the reconciliation that must happen between God and us. We're gonna see Jesus' plan here in a second. We're gonna see Jesus' humility We're going to see Jesus' justice or his righteousness. And I forget the last one. We're going to see Jesus' power. Those are the four things we're going to see today. All showing us how God and man are reconciled. So that's what we're doing. 25 verses to do it. We're going to cover lots of random stuff that maybe most of us don't get, but I think we'll understand at the end. So let's go to Mark 11 there. Luke just read it. Verse 1. Let's set the stage. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives Jesus sent two of his disciples and he sends them to go do a task. So they are rolling into Jerusalem in the Passover week. Passover week is the week if you're a Jew it's, it looks back to when they were under Egyptian slavery and the way they got out is God said we're gonna do, they did all these kind of curses against the Egyptian pharaoh and the people who wouldn't let, go, let them go. And the last one was at Passover. Take blood from an innocent lamb, wipe it on your door if you're a Jew, and if I see blood on the door, I will pass over your house. And it's been celebrated every year since and they are rolling into town and it is Passover week. They say Jerusalem at this point had 40,000, 50,000 folks. But during Passover, it would get six times as big, if not more. So they are coming into this picture Glendale when the Super Bowl was in town. They are coming into a city where lots of strangers, lots of foreigners, lots of religious people, lots of curious people are busting at the seams to see what's going to go down here at the Passover. And then you've got the added intrigue of this Jesus guy. Did you hear about that one guy? Yeah, he... They said he raised a guy from the dead. What's this, Jesus? So you got Passover, you got the curiosity tied up in Jesus, and that's what's going on here. They're entering here into Passover week. That's the stage. Now Jesus is going to kind of take a tangent, which we don't get, and the disciples would be confused by, but let's read it here. Verse 2, and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Got it? Verse 4. And they went away, and what do you think happened? They found the colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. If you're not a Christian, that's weird. If you're a Christian, that's weird. (laughs) Either way, that's weird. They roll in into the busiest week any of them ever experienced with this guy who seems to be the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And the first set of instructions is go into town, get this donkey that no one's ever sat. Some guy's going to ask you about it. He's not going to harass you. Just tell him Jesus needs it. He'll say, cool, no problem. You take the colt and bring it back to me. Done. This is the kickoff to Passover week. What do I gather from this? If we are going to be reconciled to God, what we need first and foremost is a plan from God. We need Jesus' plan in particular. How do I know that to be true? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, we are living in perfect harmony with God. Genesis 3, we screw up. Our forefathers, Adam and Eve, screw up. And what's their immediate reaction in every reaction since then towards God as they run? So, we're not coming up with a plan. Adam and Eve are running. God has to go find them. Josh is running when he comes in this earth because I have guilt, shame, and fear, and all this anxiety built up in me when I actually think about a holy God. So, from the beginning, here's what humanity does in their relationship with God they run. You're like, that's how do you know that to be true? Because if you asked how many religions are there in the world, there'd be a big number we could give. Every religion that's ever existed is simply man's attempt to deal with their guilt and their anxiety and their fear as they are running and hiding from God. It's not man's attempt to turn around and get back to God the right way, the way God would have it. It is man's, he is running full speed away from God. And they've got guilt, so they've got to do something, so they create up some sort of religious system to appease their guilt and shame. So if we are going to be reconciled to God, we're on the run. The only way we're going to get captured is if God sets up a plan to do it. And that's exactly what he did. When did he do it? It says, before the foundations of the earth. In eternity past, God dreamed up this big epic story of reconciliation. And I'm included in it. And he says, he pictured Josh, Psalm 139, it says, he, he knew me. He knew everything about me. And then he designed his plan in such a way that people who were rebels, he was going to go and chase after. The Bible says we were born into sin, born into iniquity, meaning from the get-go, our inclination is away from God. So God needs to be the author of the plan that gets us reconciled. No man or no woman has ever tried to get to God the correct way. If you read Romans 3, it says no one is good. No, not, not one. No one's righteous. No one seeks good. No one goes after God. No one, no one, no one. Because we're all on a dead sprint away. So God says, I must come up with a plan. And it's got to be peculiar. I've got to look like one of them. I've got to talk like one of them. I've got to sound like one of them, but I can't be one of them. So he sets it up through a virgin birth on the heels of this Jewish faith that he created and this sacrificial system. God created all this. He calls Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. then he creates this Jewish nation. And then he creates this sacrificial system to constantly be beating the drum. You are not living up to the standards. And I want you to be reminded. So the sacrificial system involves a temple and a holy priest, only one who gets to go into the Holy of Holies. In all these festivals that involve slaughtering and killing of animals. So that his people, his Jewish people, his chosen race, are constantly reminded, my life is not stacking up. And they're reminded when they show up to have to sacrifice another goat. You know, all along there's these whispers along the way of this land that's going to be different. This land that's going to end this system. Of this king who's going to reign forever. Turns out to be the same guy, Jesus, born of a virgin. Unblemished by human birth. Yet born of a human. Then we see that here with the colt. And then he rides into a colt that's never been touched before. I don't know horses. I'm not a cowboy. Wish I was. But a cowboy after the first service said, you don't ride an unbroken colt, sir. So what does that mean? It means you can't ride one that's been not broken. And Jesus is just again showing, I'm going to look exactly like you humans, but I am going to be unblemished by this filth that is your sin. And I'm going to be so different. I'm going to ride into town on this colt, and I'm going to do my business. Reconciliation is underway. So if if you're figuring out this faith thing, I'll, I'll give you an easy thing to do. Do you need to go and research every religion that's ever been made, compile the data, and then make a decision out of all these options? No. You just need to kind of start looking at them and all these systems of thoughts and worldviews and religions and and see if one of them stands out. Just one of them different. And start to see that the rest of them start to kind of group together. And they kind of just look the same. I mean, the similarities between the Islam faith and the LDS faith are crazy. And at the core of it is, do your very best, and God will be pleased. And then we we meet this Jesus guy, and he says, it's all on me. I'm going to do it all. And Christianity starts to separate itself as different. And all starts with the plan of God, coming after sinful, rebellious runners like you and I. Now, what would stop this plan from kicking into action? Could something I do, you do, the church, could, could we be the, the reason this plan doesn't get enacted? Nope. As I've thought about this, there's one thing that could stop this. This plan needs one guy who's perfect and also human, who's glorious And also willing to go low. If Jesus does not want to be humble, this plan never gets enacted. So the next thing we're going to see in this passage here is what we need is Jesus' humility. We see it here. Jesus' humility. Why do I say that? This plan is amazing. It involves a Jewish nation, a, a start with Abraham, God promising to bless all the nations through this lineage, through Abraham, through the seed of Abraham. What's going to stop it? Oh, one thing. Here's, here's what's going to kick all this into motion. Jesus, you've got to be born in a barn. And you've got to live with these 12 idiots for three and a half years. in the glorious reception that you definitely deserve It's going to have to be put on hold. You're going to ride a donkey. Kings don't ride donkeys. not done yet, Jesus. Let me finish how this plan goes out. You're going to be mistreated by all the authorities. You're going to be abandoned. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be belittled. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be spit upon. You're going to be left there hanging naked in front of the people you created. Are you in for this? And the only reason God and man ever get reconciled is Jesus says yes to that humiliation. That's it. I am a Christian. I get Jesus as my friend forever because he said yes to something I would never even think about saying yes to. Think of the most humble thing you've ever done. Not humiliating like this happened on accident and you were humiliated, but where you actually chose, okay, in this moment I'm going to humble myself and go low. Like, I've been preparing for this for a week, and I can't think of many humble things I've done. (laughs) That's brutal. I'm a pastor, and people come talk to me about humility, and I can't think, I can't put together a resume of humble actions in my life that I've sought out and done. I can think of times I've loved on my wife and kids, but to think of someone far off, disgusting, irreverent, whatever it is, and then think of what it would take for me to go and pursue them, ain't got time for that that's exactly what happened without the humility of jesus we are hosed we are left with a glorious just god who is looking at a condemned bunch of people who deserve his judgment unless jesus kicks in comes down in humility that's good news christian It means our hope, our assurance, our our trust, our faith is not in our ability. But all we got to do is just look back to the cross and see his humility and thank him. I know some of y'all. Some of y'all are pretty worthless. Me too. And yet Jesus says, I will go. Romans says it like this. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was reading the Bible, not while I was loving my children well, not while I was preaching a sermon from pure and true motives, not while I was going and serving the poor, while I was in sin, Jesus came after me. Read the book of Hosea. It's about a man who's told to go marry a prostitute. Not just any old prostitute, but a prostitute of prostitutes who just keeps going and going back to the life she, should have, she was living previously. What is the point of Hosea? God says this, Israel, that's you. You're the adulterous wife who just keeps going back to her old way of life. And I'm the good husband who keeps welcoming you back. You were just with another man. I open the door for you. I have a meal prepared for you. I rub your feet. I help you into bed. I tuck you in. And you go and do it again. That's my translation, but that's essentially the book. Jesus' humility is the key that unlocks this reconciliation process. On a donkey, he rolls into town, just proving again that he is the humble servant sent from God to reconcile man to himself. Now, we get to this weird section, so we're going to go to verse 12 now. I say it's weird because it is weird. It's about a tree that was killed by Jesus. And then about a church service that Jesus just ruined. How does all this fit together? And here's the word I've come to to kind of put this together. We need a plan from Jesus. We need the humility of Jesus to come down and actually enact this plan no matter what it costs him. But we also need the justice of Jesus. We need the consistent character of Jesus meaning we need the same Jesus back then as he is now we need a Jesus who doesn't turn back on us but we need a Jesus who is going to be the same yesterday today and forever parents you some of your kids are getting older you know this consistency things, things hard you've got a standard for your kid my kid's about to be 18 my dad when I was in high school probably midway through my senior year he came up to me and said so are you ready to move out yet I said good night dad it got closer. I was about two weeks from graduation. Did you find a place yet? Holy smokes, Dad. Well, I found a place for you. Got a couple days. Peace out. <laughs> Consistent. Nowadays, we've got this plan for our kids to launch, but he's just so cute. And the economy's just really hard. And college isn't like it used, so let's just. He's 37 years old, Doug. Like, <laughs> get him out. Like that, rethinking his conviction, rethinking what he stands for has never happened with Jesus. He has a standard, it's called righteousness. He has a standard, it's called justice. He only does good all the time. And it stays the same throughout all this plan. And that's a good thing because we're not wavering and trying to figure out this wishy-washy God. He is who he said he was and will always be that. Never changing. Now how do I see that from this passage here? Let's read about this poor tree. Verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus is now going back into town. Palm Sunday, he went and took a nap at uh, Mary's house. Now he's back in Tuesday and he's about to wreck shop. He was hungry. Verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, meaning the leaves are starting to come. There should be these little buds. They're not there yet. He only sees leaves. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. Meaning it's not the full season for ripe figs, but there should have been some buds there. Verse 14, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jeez, Jesus. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's read verse 20. And they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Fig tree, church, fig tree. How does this fit together? If you've been around at all, In this study of Mark, uh, Luke, our lead pastor, has brought up this sandwich idea that Mark uses. When he wants to make an emphatic point, he creates a sandwich. He makes a point, he has the meat of his argument, and then he uses that same point repeating. So fig tree, temple, fig tree. So he's using this fig tree now as an illustration to talk about this temple. That's what's going on here. And I say it ties into this idea of justice. How so? He just, he is the ultimate Jew, He is the fulfillment of anything that ever Jew ever wished about. And he comes into Jerusalem, God's city for God's people, into his temple, the place where his presence was going to be felt and known for all of time, for all people. And he curses this fig tree and then goes into the temple and just starts cursing them, indicting in a judgment on them, saying you guys are not doing what you should have been doing. Jews... Jewish leaders, temple officials, priests, pastors, all you who are part of this corrupt system, I curse. And the picture is this dead tree that Peter and the boys get to see. Wow, he's serious. Why? Simple. What does God require of us? Like if you wanted... Someone really wanted to get serious about what it means to come to Jesus. What does God require of us? He repeats this theme throughout the Bible. He narrows it down to two things to make it simple for us. Love God with everything you have, all that you have, all the time. And love your neighbor as yourself, perfectly, all the time, no matter what your neighbor looks like, smells like, acts like, or treats you like. Easy. Easy. Like, I just saw this thing on Instagram. We like guys saw the James Harrison. See if any guys are playing James Harrison, Steelers, he's a linebacker. So good. But he had this Instagram post. He's got these two young sons, and they came home with participation trophies. And his Instagram post was saying, what a joke. These boys haven't produced anything. No boy mine is going to get a participation trophy. You've got to do something to get something. And all the men are like, Amen. And all the moms are like, but he's my sweet little boy. What does God require? Is God in the business of just passing out participation trophies to anyone who's ever born? Participation. You're good. Participation. You're good. Austin, participation. You're good. The idea of that sounds good until you start to kind of, so does Hitler get a participation? Well, no, not him. Okay, so there's some rules to how you want to hand out this trophy. Okay, let's talk about those rules then. Love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself all the time, no matter what. That's what God requires. That's what he's always required from the beginning till the end. He will require that. And he goes after the Jewish nation because they are supposed to be the light on a hill. They are supposed to be the place that all the nations come to to meet God. Israel is supposed to be the most perfect picture of loving God in complete devotion and going towards your neighbors in complete devotion and love and care and mercy. And they punted on their responsibility. And all these nations that are showing up to meet Yahweh, the true God, have to go through this goofy system of exchanging their currency for other, and they're being being treated inappropriately, they're being cheated, lied to. Israel, love God, love your neighbor perfectly. You fail, curse. Look at that tree. That's your ending. You're done. Now, how does the justice of God get us to a point where God and man can be reconciled? Because that sounds impossible to me. How, How does the perfection of God, the complete righteousness of God, get us to a point where God And man can be reconciled. That seems like the barrier. It kind of is. So it leads me to my last point. The only other thing we need for God and man to be reconciled is the power of Jesus. Meaning, we get to a point where we have run out of resources, run out of morality, run out of things that we can look to in ourselves where God would be pleased. We have nothing, we are powerless. The Bible says we are weak. In our weakness, he is made strong. When we get to the point where we have nothing, God's power can kick in and kick in then only. But don't miss what his power is used for in this passage. This is the first time a miracle of Jesus is used in a destructive way. He's been raising people from the dead, raising kids, curing stuff, casting out demons. He's just been taking care of us and now we get to this point and this poor fig tree poor little fig tree sweet loving Jesus on a donkey and he curses and destroys a fig tree like that down to the roots his power is going to be used one of two ways in the lives of us as individuals, as a church as a nation, as we see here with Israel either it's going to come in judgment and he's going to judge you judge us Judge Israel for not doing what they're supposed to be doing, producing fruit, fruit that it looks like love for God and love for neighbor. If it's not there, judgment is coming. We can get cute about Jesus, and Jesus is just a good old dude. He just destroyed a tree with his words as a picture to anyone who would have ears to hear that he will destroy anything That is a barrier between him, makes a barrier between people and God. Israel was supposed to be the doorway for people to come to Christ, come to God. And they'd become a barrier. And God will destroy anything in our lives that is a barrier between us and him. Hell exists because we like to hold on to our barriers. Judgment is here, God's power is seen here. But there's good news. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, there's another way God's power can be used. We end on this one. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them. So again, Peter's like, wow, the tree, it's dead. And Jesus totally changes scenes, changes the conversation, and gets to the heart of how I want to end here. Jesus, this is how he responds. Verse 22, and Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Peter's like, wow, what's going on here? Jesus says, have faith in God. The disciples up to this point have been walking with Jesus, doing life with Jesus. Any issue that ever arose, Jesus solved for them. But we're in the last week. We're getting close to the end. Jesus is going to go away. How does that same power be made known in their life as they come into the same problems? Have faith in God. He says, pray as if it's already happened. Now, you could take this in lots of goofy ways. And you could drive on the way home and pray that your Porsche would be in the garage. Pray that your wife would stop being so annoying. Pray that your kids would just get their act together. None of that seems like the context that we're reading in this story. It seems like God has come down to earth to his city, to his temple to reconcile man to himself. So at the core of this miraculous thing, have faith in God, anything can happen is this. The reality that God and man can be reconciled because of what he's done for us. That's good news. Christian, regardless of your circumstances, here's what I know to be true. God himself has reconciled you back to himself. And he says crazy things like, I know the the plans I have for you. Everything that happens in your life is for my good purpose in your life. We are one with Christ. Everything that Christ has, we have because of faith. There is no greater miracle in all the world than being reconciled to a holy God as an unholy pagan. The power of God, Romans says it like this the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Unto reconciliation is the dynamite. The most dynamite thing God could ever do in this earth is take a sinner on the run like Adam, like Eve, running towards whatever they want and then masquerading it and covering it with religious type activity. Grab them, save them and say, you're mine forever. You're stuck with me and I'm stuck with you, God says. And that's a good thing. So non-Christian, person figuring it out. Have you been reconciled to God? Have you been reconciled to this God who has this plan and this humility to come down and act, it, but also has the power and the justice to look at a fig tree and say, dead. And look at a church and a sacrificial system and say, you're done. And look at any human heart and say, you're not lining up to this standard that's been set in motion. Have you been reconciled to God? God's plan is this. Put your faith in God. Put your trust in Jesus. His life is better than your life. His death covers all the sin that you'll ever commit or think about committing. Trust in him to be your substitute. Switch places. Be reconciled. Do that. Now, Christian, we take anything from this? I love how this ends because it seems random. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, he's talking to the disciples, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If God is in the business of reconciliation, his children should be in the same business. So Christian, who do you need to be reconciled to? Whose name or picture or voice just stir up stuff for you? Is it your dad? your siblings, a teacher. This passage ends. The power of God. Have faith in God. Anything can come to pass by faith in God. Oh, by the way, let's put a comma here. Forgive those who have sinned against you. No greater miracle in the world that I have been forgiven and Christians in this room have been forgiven. Second to that would be us as humans who are bitter, sinful, just mean-spirited, having our hearts changed and seeking forgiveness and reconciliation with those who need it in our life. Christian, as you see this passage unfold, as you see the plan of reconciliation unfold in the book of Mark, in the Bible, in your life, and you begin to reap the benefits of being in a relationship with the Lord, don't forget it happened through reconciliation. Where does that need to happen in your life? Let's pray. God, thank you for saving us. By your power through faith, and not through any sort of thing that we could look to in ourselves as the reason. God, this world is a disjointed world. Political parties fight, family members fight, socioeconomic statuses fight amongst each other. We are a divided up bunch of people. And yet, as I read your Bible and as I study it more, I keep hearing this drumbeat of reconciliation and forgiveness, specifically directed toward those who have received it in you. So I pray this place would be a place of radical reconciliation, where grudges would be gone by your power and your spirit, where past feelings would be gone and reshaped and reformed, the gospel. God, thank you for coming down in humility and taking on the task that none of us on our best day would ever even think about doing for anyone else. And yet you did it for your enemies who were on the run and you've got us and you found us. By faith, we now have a relationship with you. Thank you. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.